Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab and this may very well be the most important episode that we have ever recorded. And I don't say that lightly. Now, if you don't know who I am, my name is Goose and I am your friendly host that hosts the show every single time. But joining me today is a guy named Akil Patel. Now, Akil Patel is a he's got a master's in finance. He um is he co-runs uh, a website called Property Share Market Economics and he is one of the world's specialist thought leaders on the 18.6 year economic cycle. Now, this economic cycle affects not just real estate, but it also affects shares. It also affects the banking sector. This is really this is really the pulse of our global economy. And if you want to understand how to use this information to accelerate your wealth journey so that you can achieve a life of freedom, choice, and abundance, greater levels of prosperity, then this is going to be absolute dynamite. You know, we talk about the historic nature of the 18.6-year property cycle, where we currently are in the cycle, how to use this situation to your advantage, what to set yourself up to do next, how long the next boom phase is going to last, all this kind of stuff. It is it is fascinating and it was a genuine pleasure to be able to spend some time with Akil, um, you know, and start to pick his brains on some of this stuff. We talked about global economics. We talked about the China economy. We talked about all kinds of stuff and it was very far reaching and very, uh, a very winding conversation that covered a lot of really good ground. And I, I know that you're going to get a lot out of it. And if you don't get a lot out of it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it because maybe you just didn't quite pick up on the stuff that was being said there. But this is basically an instruction manual of kind of what to, what to do now and how to think about this next phase in the economic cycle to to make the most of it. So if you're if you're interested in in accelerating your wealth creation journey, which I'm certain you are if you listen to this show, this is absolutely for you. Now, if after listening to this you want to take action and you want some help to to get into the property market, buy good, buy good assets that are going to appreciate over this next. We, Akil actually said that this is, and I actually believe this too. Uh, this is we're going into the largest boom in history, and there's a variety of reasons for that. We kind of talk about all of these reasons in the episode. We talk about you know the drivers behind this, why this is going to be the largest boom in history, and all of that kind of stuff. So if you want help to take advantage of that, then I encourage you to reach out. Just head to uh, theinvestorlab.com.au, get access to the free resources, tools, and guides that we have there. But if you really want one-to-one help, if you want to work with me and the team to get you to where you need to go, to do it all for you and to find you properties which are going to accelerate growth, which are going to get high yields and have the ability to add value over time, that's what we call our holy trinity, then I encourage you to get in touch. Just head to dash.com.au forward slash discovery and you can book in a 15-minute call with me or the team. We'd love to have a chat with you just to see where you're at and to give you some free guidance and advice on how to take the next step in your property journey. And if now's not the right time, we'll, we'll give you the guidance you need to be able to take, pre- prepare yourself to take advantage of this over the next next couple of years. Look, without any further ado, I really want to get into this episode, but if you enjoy this, make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you have a friend or a family member who's interested in trying to get ahead, then make sure you send them this episode because there is dynamite in here. This is gold. This is this, These are the unspoken secrets that drive the whole global economic system. And if you can understand these, you, you're going to be able to outperform the average investor and to be able to set yourself up for success. So without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Today, you are absolutely in for a treat. I've got to say, I've had the opportunity to um, meet with and speak with so many great thought leaders and thinkers and and all these kind of people associated, not just with property, but with wealth and with all kinds of stuff. And, and I think that this could potentially be one of the most uh, ex- excited that I've been for, for one of these conversations. Um, we're joined today by Akil Patel. Akil, how are you? Very well, thanks. Thank you for having me. So a lot of people probably won't understand um, why I'm so excited, but for, for me, I think um, the work that you do and also the work of uh, your counterpart, Philip J. Anderson, is is potentially the most important work for people to understand if they want to find success, particularly in real estate and shares. And I really want to dig into that uh, in this in this whole dialogue, in this conversation. That's why we're here, what we want to talk about. But to give people a little bit of background and to get them up to speed, I'm lucky enough to have already gone down the rabbit hole and understand you know, who you are and how you got here. But for the benefit of the listener, why don't we give them a little bit of backstory and kind of just let us know a little bit about who you are and, and what 
what is this this eighteen year property eighteen point six year property cycle? Okay, um, so uh, my background is quite varied. Um, I've sort of worked for the UK government. I'm currently working in international development for a for a multilateral development bank headquarters in London. Uh, but I also have a side business, uh, which is uh, with my good friend Phil Anderson, who who just mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. called Property Share Market Economics, uh, and that is our sort of sort of uh, organisation where we put out our research on the 18.6 year property economic cycle um, to help investors firstly understand what it is, how it works, how long it's been going for in history, um, and so i.e. how enduring it is, and and then, and most importantly, what's likely to be coming next and how they can take advantage of it. Um, and so we've been doing that, well, Phil and I have been working together for a number of years, but we set this thing up uh, towards the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's there for, for really to help people understand the cycle, build their wealth, make sure they don't lose their wealth in the bad times, which often happens to people, yeah. uh, and really sort of, um, you know, be able to live the lives that they want to live, um, albeit for themselves or for their families or whoever. Okay, awesome. So, uh, I mean, obviously we're going to get into exactly how the cycle is, how long it goes for, all of that kind of stuff, but yep. how, like, how did, you, how did you come across this information or how did you uncover yeah, did you did you did you discover the eighteen point six year cycle? Yeah. Did you learn it from somebody else? How did you get to where you you are with the knowledge around these cycles? Yeah, so I mean, I first became curious about all this stuff in the run up to the global financial crisis, like I suppose a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to be honest, I my background is it not in you know nothing to do with economics or finance. I uh, studied classics at Oxford um, back in the two thousands. Um, and uh, really, I you know was reading the papers and the news and the Economist and all that kind of stuff in 2007, and they were trying to really understand the global financial crisis as it was sort of starting. And I just didn't, I wasn't really convinced. And one of the reasons why I wasn't convinced is that my father's business, uh, he's in pharmaceutical wholesaling and based in London, um, it was going through a pretty rough patch largely because banks were starting to call in loans from small businesses, even though there was nothing fundamentally wrong with the business. Um, And I kind of remember that as being quite a difficult period. And it was also similar to a period that his business had experienced in the early 90s. And, you know, both episodes have been preceded by a major property boom and, you know, a lot of euphoria and a lot of people buying stuff and, you know, having a good time and so on. And I was asking myself, well, why aren't people putting the two episodes together to explain it? Mm. Uh, and so I went on this sort of journey to try and identify what the similarities were and why other people weren't seeing it. Uh, and that brought me across a number of people who had written about the 18-year cycle. And so I, um, you know, read that avidly. I met with Phil. Um, uh, and I decided at that point that I wanted to build a body of knowledge that investors and business owners and employees and uh, and so on uh, would not ever have to go through the difficult periods that my uh, family had to go through in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Yeah, it makes sense. So, but can I just ask, was it purely that distinction between, did you, did you singularly draw the correlation between, um, you know, societal euphoria and that kind of like the kind of boom environment where everyone's going, oh my God, this is great. And then go, hang on a second. But on the other side here, we've got this, we've got this other less desirable economic so Did you draw that distinction directly or did that come after you started, um, you know, reading and researching into it? I mean, it was obvious in 2006 and seven that people were paying way over the odds for for assets. And you know, you could you get you could open the paper or you talk to your friends, and they'd say, "Oh, I, I got this loan, and I didn't even have to, you know, prove my income." And you know, it was clearly something was a bit off uh, because you know, you know, things just aren't supposed to work like that. Um, so there was the euphoria, but particularly important to me because I'd done a bit of reading in this area by that point was the fact that property seemed to be fundamentally involved in the story um and that i think wasn't being given enough recognition which is why i went and wanted to investigate and see why you know what more i could know about it yep okay cool so you've touched on something there property banking um what i i've actually got three copies of a book called the secret life of real estate and banking <laughs> funnily enough um so I mean, what do you what, what, times uh, well, I've I've got I gotta say it's not the easiest read, right? It's not it's not exactly it's a, a weighty, 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's not exactly a page turner. And it's actually really hard to find. Like, it's actually really hard to get. I The reason I have three copies is because I ordered them all from different places in the world, hoping that one would finally arrive. And then they all arrived within a week. Uh, and my partner, Gab, my partner Gabby, was thought I was a little gone a little mad, but that's okay. So... Okay, so what we're talking about, so we'll, we'll talk about the UK because that's where you were kind of unpacking all of this and we'll kind of branch it out more broadly. So, you know, there was there was a scenario where everyone was getting basically cheap and easy money, a little too easy. Um, yeah. The property market had got, gotten very frothy. Um, yeah. You could see that there was some systemic issues with banks and you saw that, that, that there was some kind of relationship between the banking sector giving out stupid amounts of money and the real estate sector and how that, what's that, what's that relationship directly? Because a lot of people would think that, um, you know, like property, property is underpinned by land. Um, you know, what's that got to do with the financial sector? I mean, you can, we can kind of all kind of like easily understand if everyone gets money too easily, like you can kind of get a little, go a little frothy, but what's the, what's the relationship there? I mean, it's, look, it's good. Great question. So, I mean, basically most of what the banking system does is lend people money so that they can buy houses. I mean, that's essentially, you know, 60, 70 percent of what the banking system does. The rest of the stuff, which you think probably is what it does, like lending to businesses, is mm. actually a very small part of it. Um, and the, 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 the issue with land, and I think Mark Twain said it, you know, buy land, they're not making any more of it. It's fundamentally fixed in supply and, you know, particularly in the best locations. Uh, and so, you know, when, um, you know, when the economy is doing well and people are wealthy or they can borrow more money, they can afford to bid up uh, prices for real estate. Uh, and then it goes uh, goes up uh, and they make equity. So when they sell it, they've got some more money to spend. Assuming, I mean, most most predictably, they'll put it into another property. You know, the banks are uh, earning interest over uh, an asset that's increasing in value. So their balance sheet looks good and it's quite lucrative activity. So there's a lot of factors that go into pushing prices up and up and up. Um, and at some point, you know, the economy can't take it anymore because, you know, wages don't follow suit and business profits don't follow suit. And so all the other things in the economy get squeezed. Uh, and once it can't take it any longer, it all sort of stops rather suddenly and then comes into a collapse. Okay. So is what you're saying that real estate underpins all of the like there's a lot of moving parts in an economy like yeah. you've got you obviously got you know business and you got you got bonds and shares you got all of these kind of different financial mechanisms um that yeah. float around and each have a different function and each have different characteristics but are you are you saying that real estate fundamentally underpins all other aspects of the the economic cycles or what what's your yeah i mean in, in 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 two senses one is that you know, everyone needs a piece of land to live and, you know, every business has to be located somewhere. Even if you're, even if it's remote, it's located somewhere. You know, we, physical earth is, is, um, is, is a constant in any activity. Uh, and so, uh, there's always demand for land and, you know, we tend to cluster in locations. So there's always demand for well-located land and that underpins our entire economic system in fact it underpins our entire existence um so that's the main that's the main reason why it's sort of based upon land but the other reason is as i mentioned um you know land has got so expensive in our economies that we all require uh, a bank loan to to get it uh, and you know if you want to own, own it um and therefore the banking system is very much tied to the land and land prices not collapsing because that then affects their balance sheets. Uh, but banks don't only, you know, lend for real estate, they lend for businesses. So when there's problems with the real estate market, it transmits itself into, uh, you know, to, into other sectors of the economy. Um, and so, uh, and so, you know, just as my father's business found in 2009, banks were having issues with bad real estate loans. Uh, and and their response to it was to call in loans from small businesses. So then all those small businesses collapsed and people were laid off. Uh, and so not only did you have a collapsing real estate market, you had businesses that were going to the wall and uh, rising unemployment. So well, that, all, that, and and, and, that, and that's a that's a downward spiral, right? Because as soon as you start getting more unemployed people, they can't afford to pay the rent. That devalues the real estate market, and it becomes a, a doom loop. And then, it, and then it takes several years for all that to play out because the banks have to offload their assets. Um, uh, and people have to recover. People have to find jobs. And they, you know, credit has to come back. And that takes, you know, several years. 
Who do the banks offload their assets to when when things start to go pear shaped? Who do they sell them to? Uh, well, I mean, often they find you know very credit worthy borrowers who who would be willing to take on portfolios of loans or you know single loans or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are there are some you know major hedge funds that were set up in two thousand and eight because they knew there'd be a whole load of distressed assets coming along, and they you know were able to raise investor capital, so they. You know, there's a number of uh, large Wall Street firms that hoovered up huge amounts of real estate in Europe uh, in, between 2009 and 2011 when there was a, a Eurozone crisis. So, so there, you know, there's always people with deep pockets just waiting to buy. And, you know, you want to be one of them rather than the ones who's having to sell in a forced sell in a, in a falling market. Yeah, we're definitely going to get to the um, deepening the pockets aspect of it. But I, I, I'm curious, right? So you said you studied classics, um, your dad was a businessman, all of that kind of stuff. You didn't study finance. I, well, I did eventually in 2005. I did a master's in finance. Okay, got um, it, got it. Yep. So yeah, I mean, but it didn't help me at all understand what was going on or how to take advantage of it. So it was two <laughs> <Okay>. years <old. laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Well, let, look, I, I want to get to that because I want to understand why the masters in finance didn't actually help you to understand all this kind of stuff. But why don't we take a little step back and just why don't you explain what the eighteen point six year cycle is for those who don't understand? Okay. So it's basically, I mean, it's the economic cycle. So it's the it regulates the periods of boom and bust that we have all kind of seen firsthand, I guess, by now. Um, and so it's, uh, we can come on to why it might be 18 years in a second, but um, it essentially has four main phases. Um, the first sort of two or three are kind of a 14 year period of expansion, which consists of two seven year halves, which are interrupted by a mid cycle recession. And then you get four years of collapse, crash, and recovery, uh, which is kind of the period that I described a few moments ago. You know, it takes a while for the banking system to recover and so on. So it's two seven years halves, halves um, with a mid-cycle recession, which is 14 years up, essentially, uh, and then a four-year period of recession, depression, crash, and recovery for an overall 18-year period. Can I ask something about that? Because there's something about that math that doesn't stack up, and this is something that, that's bugged me, right? Okay. It's an it's an 18-point year, six-year cycle, right? So average. 14, average, yeah, okay, get, yeah, got it, got it. Uh, so it's 14 years up and four down, got it. And the cycle is broken into two seven-year halves on the way up yeah. Yeah. and then a four-year downturn. But in the yeah. middle, there's a mid-cycle slowdown, which is 12, to, 12 months to 24 months or whatever the case may be. Doesn't, or, or half a year. I mean, in 2001, it was half a year. Yeah, okay. So how does – because that kind of like throws the maths out. Like if you've got a two-year mid-cycle slowdown, it suddenly becomes a 20.6-year cycle. Uh, well, I mean, look, there are some examples where maybe the cycle was a bit longer and, and a bit shorter, but it averages out very – there's not much variation in that, but it does yeah. average to about 18 and a half years. Um, uh, well, but it's not always the case that each – Seven year expansion is uh, is always exactly seven years. Sometimes it's a bit shorter. Um, some and so you know, and sometimes you might find even though overall both of them together are fourteen years, maybe the first half is eight years and the second half is six years. So it's you wouldn't necessarily uh, get your Swiss watch, Swiss watch and uh, set it exactly to eighteen point six, but you know, you you should know that there's actually very little variation around those different uh, dimensions. Yeah, I guess very little in the um, in the quantum scheme of things. You know, very little, like very very little when you're talking. It could be a six month variation, it could even be a twelve month variation. But over the over the context yeah, I mean, of, if you were told in 2012 that look, you've got sort of you know 14 years of things looking pretty good, uh, and it might end up being 13 and a half or or 15. You know, I think you'd be fairly happy with. with <laughs> I, I I agree. I agree. I agree. We're splitting hairs. Okay. So what are the cat? Okay. So like, do do those different? Because it's not just fourteen years straight up. We said that there's a mid cycle slowdown. Um, what are the what are the characteristics of the different phases? Because as I understand it, yeah. the first half, the first seven years, is very different to the second seven years, and in the middle is obviously very different to both of those seven years. And then what happens in the end? What are the characteristics of each of the phases? Uh, well, the first half, you know, we're always looking backwards. We've just gone through the financial crisis that of the end of the, uh, the end of the previous cycle. Um, you know, a lot of people don't really see things turning forward, um, or they're quite scared, or they don't think it's going to last very long, so they stay out of the market. So there's a lot of fear, a lot of denial, a lot of doubt uh, that characterises 
the first half. I mean, it, you know, things do improve. I mean, it's obvious after a few years that things are expanding and property prices are going up and, you know, you, you credit starts to become more easily available. And so you can start to make good investments. Um, uh, but it's not, it's not, you know, outlandish, euphoric, frenzied activity uh, that you've, you know, seen in the second half of the cycle. So that the first half is start slowly, tends to be a bit slower than the second half. Um, people take a while to wake up to what's going on. Um, and often actually uh, it's, it's, it's often, you most see it most easily when there's some kind of new technology that's suddenly being applied uh, to the economy. Now, I mean, in this current cycle, there's been quite a few of those things actually, but you know, I mean, the iPhone-based economy or the smartphone-based economy really started in 2008. Um, and, you know, you can pretty much run a, you know, a multinational business off your iPhone these days because with all the apps and so on. Okay. That, 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 that's interesting. So you're basically saying that the transition to – because I was wondering what you were saying there, like what technology? I was like, what, what finance technology? But the, you're considering the iPhone to be uh, a financial instrument, so to speak. I mean, one of them, but the, the cost of running a business now off your iPhone is is just, you know, cr- shockingly low compared to how it was even 10 or 15 years ago. Interesting. Um, so, so, I mean, that entire economy is developed out of that. But it's not just that. I mean, you know, think about the advances around renewable technology, green energy, electric cars, um, you know, uh, 3D manufacturing. I mean, there's a huge number of different things going on this time. But, you know, often it's, you can see it looking back historically, there's some sort of new technology driving things forward. I suppose in the, uh, the start of the previous cycle, it was the internet that was really kind of kicking off in the early to mid 90s. Um, in, in previous cycles, it's, you know, if you go to the uh, early 20th century, late 19th century, it was electricity and before that, it was the railroads and so on. So there's always something that kicks off the new boom. Yeah. Um, uh, and people who are sort of jumping on that tend to start off very well. That's the first half of the cycle. The mid-cycle recession, um, well, it's often it's an external event that causes or seems to cause the recession. Um, but economies are, are definitely slowing into the recession because things have gone a bit too far. You know, prices, are, property prices are high. Things are getting a bit squeezed. Uh, investors are still a bit fearful, so they haven't put money into the market and they're staying out. Uh, and things get slow again. Okay, so I want to ask, right? So what what we're ba- what you're basically saying, and what I know is that we're currently in a mid cycle slowdown. So if we put this in real terms, and we'll kind of like specifically, as most of our listeners are Australian, so we had the GFC, that was the yeah. that was the economic downturn, and then we had seven years growth, seven years up from roughly 2012. Yeah, yeah. So roughly 20, 20, 2012, seven years of growth. And then we were due for a mid-cycle slowdown, okay, according to the 18.6-year cycle. So we were due for, like, it was it was sort of coming. Would Now, a lot of people would go, well, I mean, like, no one knew the coronavirus was coming, right? So how can... How, how, how can you? How can you? How can you say that? And, and are you just capitalising? I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you. Is it just capitalising on the fact? That, oh, look! Look! Something happened. Or would would the economic slowdown have happened? Would we have had a recession? Because you know Australia is actually on a global scale coping quite well economically, but the rest of the world isn't. And this is pretty indicative of exactly what happened in the GFC as well. Nonetheless, though, we've got a there is a global recession going on. So, would that have happened without the coronavirus? Uh, I think so. So, uh, you know, if you look at service data, I mean, I don't know how sort of how much your listeners know about this. Like PMI data and so on that you often use to um, gauge levels of activity. They were all slowing the end of last year. And you know, the really key thing that you know everyone knows that when. Oh, everyone. I'm sorry. Maybe assuming knowledge, but people tend to know that the when the yield curve inverts. Um, you tend to have a recession coming within a year, and it, you kind of inverted in uh, in 2019. So, so you know there was definitely certain concerns about recession in the air. There's a slowdown in in service data uh, and so on. Yes, the coronavirus then came on top of that and caused it to become a bit of a slump. Um, but that's partly because of our reaction to it. So, you know, there's under no circumstances are we going to get economic growth if the government tells us to sit at home and do nothing for several months. I mean. That clearly exacerbates a bad situation and makes it so much worse. But on the other hand, 
you very rarely get recessions where the government can sort of clap its hands and say, right, everyone start working again, and then things suddenly open up. So, so yes, things the coronavirus made things a lot worse, but because of the situation, things have, could op- recover much more quickly. And I think that is what we'll find in the next sort of 12 months. Uh, and in addition to all of that, um, if we'd had a relatively small slowdown, we wouldn't have pumped the trillions of dollars of liquidity into the financial system to that we have as a response to coronavirus. So that liquidity will definitely push the economy forward uh, in the coming years. Yeah, I, I want to dig into these mechanics because I've got to say there was a bit of a light bulb moment. I'd been into the I'd been into learning about this cycle for some time. Uh, and it was only once I actually started uh, seeing government policy play out pretty much like the 18.6-year cycle had dictated loosening of credit, you know, addition of liquidity. So I was like, oh, this is this is happening like clockwork. So, okay, for just taking a little step back, just for uh, everyone's benefit, do you want to explain the yield curve inverting? That's bond yields? Yeah, so, um, so yes, this is bond yields. So you can borrow money in the bond market for different lengths of time. It can be very short-term, like three months or Nine, you know, 120 mm-hmm. days or something. Uh, it could be for a very long time. I mean, some bonds go for 30 years, 50 years, even 100 years. Um, and the rate of interest that you pay on those bonds depends on how long you borrow for. So obviously, if you're going to extend a loan to the government for 100 years, you're going to want slightly more interest than if you extend the loan to the government for 30 days, for example. And so yeah. you tend to have what is known as an upward sloping yield curve when things are, quote unquote, normal. What you tend to find is prior to the recession, um, the yield curve inverts because the government, because the um, the uh, uh, government, sorry, the government, the market is expecting things to look quite difficult in the short term, uh, and therefore requires a high rate of interest to lend in a difficult in- environment. But long term, things will recover, and so you get. It's more expensive to uh, you get better price on loans for the short term than for the long term, which is an unusual situation. Okay, so I'm I'm we're going very tangential here. I hope you don't mind because I'm I'm going to be inquisitive. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 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 what we're talking about there with the yield curves inverting, I think this is really important for people to understand because uh, you know it it did happen last year, and everyone was talking about there was a recession coming, and most people just didn't don't understand what a yield curve is, right? So it's the forecast, it's what the market predicts is going to happen. It's saying, look, if we look into the future, it's going to go up or it's going to go down. Do 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 if the market decides what that future uh, looks like, does the market? which is essentially just an amorphous mass of human beings and human emotion and stuff like that. Does the market live out a self-fulfilling prophecy where it gets to a certain point and then starts to have doubts and then starts to self-sabotage in a certain way? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> yeah. So I think George Soros kind of talks about reflexivity and so on. So the, the, there is a signal and therefore everyone acts on that signal and it kind of become, it's reflexive. So it feeds back on itself. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not enough of a market, um, I don't know what the term is, philosopher or or something to to really have uh, understood that question. It's a very good question. Um, but the, the signal wouldn't have occurred in the first place had um, there not been some fundamental reasons why things were slowing down. Um, and yes, may it then, it then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because everyone acts on it. But actually, if you read the news around the inversion of the yield curve um, in 2019, as I'm sure you did, you'll find that uh, as it happens, actually, a lot of times um, people think, well, this, there's a reason why this inversion is meaningless. And and part of it I can understand was because there's been so much, um, uh, I suppose, government intervention in the bond market since the financial crisis uh, that, you know, they've pushed yields down all over the place. Mm. Um, and so, so I could well understand why people think, well, you know, it's just the government tampering with things again. Yeah. Um, but it, what's quite interesting is that, you know, at a time when, you know, based on the cycle, you were expecting a recession, uh, you got the inversion of the yield curve, uh, and then we got a recession, albeit that, you know, as I said, coronavirus made it a lot worse. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Makes sense. So just taking, just I'm going to recap a little bit, right? So we've got essentially yeah. G- GFC, economic downturn, yeah. was that, yeah. that, and that was all part of the cycle, right? It's not like that was an yeah. anomalous event. That was all part of the cycle. Then we had, yeah. and then we had a growth phase. And then yep. we're currently in a mid-cycle slowdown that would have happened regardless of the coronavirus. It's just it's been exacerbated by. 
the yeah, coronavirus? Basically, it has to be said, yes. Yep. Okay. What happens next? Yeah, so the government typically, if you read Phil's book, because Phil in his in his book that you've got three copies of documents the cycle um there you go. <laughs> it documents a cycle um, from 1800s to the present day in the US. Um, and so what happens is that, you know, lower interest rates, looser uh, monetary policy, so printing a lot of money. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is a lot of infrastructure spending drives the second half of the cycle forward. Um, and by this point, you know, we'll have, we've, we've not got the GFC to look back at. We now have the coronavirus story to look back at. Uh, and that story will be much more positive. It'll be actually, you know, we took some difficult decisions. We shut the economy down. We got rid of the virus, you know, assuming that we do. Um, and uh, we know how to manage the economy. We, we decided to pump, pump liquidity in the system and we spent a lot of money and it's worked. Aren't we so great at managing the economy? And that's the story that investors will have as they approach the second half of the cycle. There's a lot more confidence uh, because there's a lot more money sloshing around because a lot of infrastructure going in, which is very bullish for an economy. Um, things will start to feed in on itself uh, because there's more confidence that turns into euphoria, which then goes over the top. Uh, and then you get the blow off peak um, seven years in. Okay. So if we think about this, the the first ramp from from the from the GFC to now has been you know mo- like it's been increasing but it's been relatively moderate I guess I would say a sensible pace for, for lack of a better term and then it yeah. uh, and then it drops off and then everyone gets overinflated by hubris and goes hammer and tongs the government has particularly in Australia they've just announced they're going to uh, at, you know scrap responsible lending laws yeah. <laughs> basically or they give easier access to credit they're pumping you know so far i can't remember 500 500 odd billion into the economy uh in a in an economy of 23 million people which is yeah. if you do the math on that divide 500 billion by 23 million i think you realize there's a lot of money floating around on a per capita basis um yeah. okay so side side note when was the so we if we go back so we go gfc was the last end of that kind of so what what we're essentially saying now is like from now or from next year we're going to have another seven year roughly upcycle well i mean you know this goes back to your point about the maths not you know always being sort of absolutely precisely seven years i mean i think the first half was maybe slightly longer than seven years um it sort of depends on how long it takes us to recover from this coronavirus mid-cycle recession story yeah. um I'd, I'd say at least kind of you could you could say seven years from about 2019, which is kind of when things were first starting to kind of slow down, uh, would bring us to 2026. Um, the US tends to lead. So the US might be slightly earlier. Australia and the UK and Europe tends to be a bit behind the US, maybe up to a year. Um, and so it's hard to know exactly if um, it will be 2026 in all of those places. Um but, you know, this is, gives you a landing zone, shall we say. And I mean, the thing, and you mentioned Australia doing fairly well during the global financial crisis and, and not being so bad now. I mean, Australia has a lot of land, a lot of natural resources, and you've got a fairly large consumer kind of not too far away. So uh, customer, shall we say. So, um, you know, uh, the commodity story has an impact on, um, you know, how well the Australia, Australian economy does and the in, insatiable demand for, for for your natural resources that you have from mm-hmm. countries not so far away. Uh, and that might also play out in the second half of the cycle as well. So with China picking up, building, you know, um, China's trying to build out rail across the entire Eurasian continent. I mean, that's going to push up demand for Australian natural resources enormously. And if that that itself might go on slightly beyond 2020. So I don't want to say it's you know precisely 1st of January 2026, you've got to head for the hills and buy a shotgun. Um, you know, what, that's just your time frame. What happens, like, let's just, we'll use that. We, we'll, we'll say 2026, understanding yeah. that it's not, not if, if you're listening to this, no one's trying to predict it's all going to fall apart. But what happens, what happens, what happens at the end of the cycle? I mean, like, if, if you think about this, you know, does everything just do is it an apocalypse you know like does the world end because i think if we look at the gfc you know particularly in australia all they did was basically hand out 900 dollars for everyone to go buy a television and our economy was okay so what actually happens what happens at the end of 2026 is it is it bad is it is it okay like what's the situation 
Yeah, so the advantage that Australia has is, you know, it can see things coming. And, um, you know, the Australian government was pretty flush with cash in, in, 2000 and, in 2008, 2009. And, um, you know, so it was able to do stuff. It was able to put a lot of money into the economy. And I think if you look at the graph of TV sales in Australia around that time, I mean, it, went, it had a massive spike because <laughs> that's basically where that check went. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, you, it could it could play out similarly but you know the thing is that um uh if china has a major downturn which it might do it it, it sort of uh, turned things around pretty quickly with a major fiscal stimulus in 2009 i mean it was enormous between the us and chinese stimulus packages i mean it was we're talking about pumping money to the tune of trillions um uh, so but if china has a major downturn that will obviously have transmit itself into the australian economy um it's not a given that you'll have a commodities boom still going on into the late 2020s and if that's the case then you know things may start to look quite difficult for australia so okay if we just looked at it objectively regardless of like current economic conditions and stuff what what is the theory around what would happen at the end of the cycle does it does it crash as in like does everything and we're, uh, we're gonna i yeah. want to talk to real estate as a point does it does it go skyrocketing down in value or does it just flatline and it therefore has crashed in in context with inflation like what's how bad does it get i mean i think it depends on what we're talking about so the stock markets typically have a pretty significant bear market mm. and, and that was also true in australia um so i mean the dow jones if you take it back the dow jones the broad u.s market back to 1800s the average fall is about 48 percent uh, and in the UK, at least in recent cycles, that fall at the end of the cycle has been even more. And I think same same with Australia. Um, so that you know, if you're a stock market investor, you're going to have to you know be out of the market. I think um, at that time because markets go down, they can tank very quickly. Property, uh, I think it really depends on where you are. And you know, so if you've bought, you know, if you bought well early in the cycle in the centre of Sydney or in Melbourne. Or Perth, well, Perth I think is slightly affected by commodities. But you know, if you've got well-located property and you've paid a good price, I mean, that is really not going to go down too much in value. And in any case, you know, you'll have good rental demand and so on. And so that, you know, you probably by the time things look bad, you you know, you won't in it from an income point of view, probably won't have much of a difference. If on the other hand, you've been speculating in marginal kind of cities on the edges of cities, paid overpaid for land. Um, you know, the, the, your calculations as to demand for the type of property that you're building, say, for example, is actually a bit over-optimistic, which it might well be in the second half of the cycle when everyone is optimistic in general, uh, then those kinds of assets can fall very dramatically in value. Well, you won't be able to shift them uh, unless you, you know, knock 80% off the price. And so that can really, really ruin your banks withdraw credit from schemes. Then you're stuck with basically, you know, half a building or something. So, it sort of depends, really, but um, you know, it's but, not a good time to be selling. Okay, so that's really interesting because, uh, and I'd love to you to talk into this, even if it's just to tell me that I'm wrong. But my understanding um, was that essentially, particularly for the Australian market, the first half of the cycle historically indicates Melbourne and Sydney have a have a boom, which is what's happened. Uh, yeah. If we look at the past, you know, look broadly at the past ten years. And then we have a mid-cycle slowdown and then other parts of the country, specifically Brisbane, Perth and regionals and Darwin yeah. are the ones yeah. that um, experience the growth and there's a variety of mechanical reasons around that. And then we have, you know, a decline again and then it switches back. Is that is yeah. that fairly accurate? That's fairly accurate. And that dynamic plays out in every country. So you always have this sort of centre to periphery Thing. So this, the, the more peripheral locations, and I'm not saying that you know, Brisbane is in any way peripheral, but, you know, it's not as big as um, as Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah. Um, yeah, they tend to have stronger second half of the cycles than uh, the, the major cities. And that's true in the UK. It's true in the US and New York and LA have, were very strong in the first half of the cycle. Uh, you're now starting to see that, you know, s secondary and tertiary cities in the US uh, are, are really picking up. And probably will have the most growth, and partly because it's a function of migration. You know, there are people are priced out of expensive locations, uh, and and that goes is also true of companies, uh, and they relocate, uh, and that pushes up demand in other places. 
Yeah, totally. Because because the way the way that I've looked at it, and from from my own analysis, is that essentially, if you look at if you look at it, you know, broadly we say an eighteen year cycle, and in the first half of it, Sydney and Melbourne price in their growth for eighteen years. So over the first seven years, they sort of price in their growth, and then for the second seven years, don't go as as dramatically upwards because they've already kind of factored in a lot of the growth. Whereas some of the other areas which have been much flatter, or even in the case of say Perth, which is actually actually did experience a decline, uh, has got a long way to move. And so the, the shift is much bigger. It's a little more volatile. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's true in London as well. So in the second half of the last cycle, the growth was in you know Scotland and Northern Ireland and uh, kind of Northern English regions. I mean, but then to be fair, London still went up pretty significantly in the second half it was not that it didn't ha- it didn't flatline um but if the in terms of percentage growth it was bigger in in other other places yeah okay got it you touched on something a moment ago and i want to circle back to that china because we've sort of talked we've we've touched on the uk which is where you are we've touched on the fact that the us kind of leads the trend uh and then and australia follows and australia's where i am what about what about China, what about the rest of the world economies? Because they can't all, like this, if this 18.6 year cycle holds true, does it hold true in every single country? Or to that degree, given the size of China and even India's economy, what impacts, do do they have a different cycle and what impacts do they have on this cycle? How do those kind of things interrelate? Yeah, look, this is really it's a really good question. So um, I think the jury is still a little out on this because there's not enough history to know for sure. You know, we can go back to before 1800 in the UK and to 1800 in the US and, you know, almost as long in Australia. Um, and you can trace these things out. China really only joined the kind of modern trading system in 1978. And even then it took some time for it to really mm. to really establish itself. Um, and so we just don't have the firstly, we don't know that uh, China is on an 18-year cycle, and then we don't know if it's on the same 18-year cycle that we are on. Mm. Um, But, you know, you can, you know, it is becoming increasingly possible for Chinese people and developers and others to speculate in Chinese real estate. And when you've got that, then you definitely get a real estate cycle. Um, My bet is that the Chinese economy will be on the same cycle as the US and Western countries. And so it's now really a global cycle. Um, and so that makes the boom periods even bigger and that makes the downturns even worse. Um, but we'll have to wait and see uh, later this decade. Um, it's also possible if you, if you read UK and US history, uh, they had the opposite cycle. So when the US was in the peak UK was at sort of a mid cycle, and when the UK was at its peak, the US was at its mid cycle. So you got that kind of da- dynamic throughout the 19th century. So I suppose it's possible that the US and China might have that dynamic established at some point, mm-hmm. um, but we don't know. Uh, it, but you know, cu- countries can join the global system, and and it's you know there is evidence that they then start to display um, the cycle, and the most thrilling example in some ways is japan so japan emerged as you know you know really war-torn country in the mid 50s um reconstruction and rebuilt itself and developed and became an export powerhouse uh, and then started having real estate cycles and you know the, the 1990 real estate peak was so big that um it took them you know 20 years to recover from it so does it does the does the cycle get bigger every time yeah, the numbers always get bigger. Okay, yeah. so does that mean bigger booms and bigger? Does it mean a bigger fluctuation between the the peaks and the troughs, or does it just mean that consecutively the numbers all move up and it's ostensibly the same variation from the peak to the trough? It's just that we're talking about higher numbers. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, you're always talking about higher numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Whether the higher numbers means that the collapse, you get to lower numbers uh, in the downturn. Um, I think that just depends on the circumstances of the time. So, I mean, government has got exceedingly good at um, supporting property prices in the downturn. I mean, not not saying every every single property doesn't, you know, keeps its value, but you know, it's able to intervene very quickly and and stop what might be a major major crash like you got in say 1929 to 1932, the Great Depression. Mm. Uh, government's quite good at arresting that before it gets too crazy. Um, so it's, uh, b- but on the other hand, uh, the bigger the boom, the bigger the problem at the end. So 
So uh, it kind of really depends on, firstly, the current circumstances. It depends on how quick the government is into is intervening. It depends on whether the market buys it because some, you know, the eurozone crisis in 2009-10. I mean, the Italian investors didn't <laughs> buy any of the interventions that the Italian government were making. So, whereas they did in Germany. So, you know, it, it can it can vary. It's it's a bit hard to say. But I, in, the, in the general principle is the bigger the boom, the bigger the bust. And so, if we have a truly big boom, as I'm expecting for the 2020s, I expect then therefore that the late 2020s will look fairly grim. Uh, particularly in certain locations. Interesting. So by your hypothesis and your belief, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, not trying to pin you up on anything here, but your belief is that we are about to enter into the largest boom. This, if we're going continuously bigger yes. numbers, this would be the biggest boom. Yeah, it's, it's the biggest boom um, even more for, for even more reasons. So the numbers do get bigger, but this time we've got a truly global cycle, it seems. So if, you know, the hypothesis about China being part of the global cycle now, you know, if China is now part of it, I mean, at some point in the 2020s, China will be recognized by everyone, including the US as the world's largest economy. Um, uh, and that will, that will be a big investor story. India is joining the party as well. Um, uh, India is a bit closer to the West in terms of its economic system. So, you know, you would be very surprised if it didn't have the same 18-year cycle. Uh, and, you know, but it's not just those two. I mean, so Africa has suddenly got amazing demographics and, you know, very hungry for, you know, positive change. Uh, you have all the East Asian tigers, this very big export-oriented economy. So the, 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 the ways in which the world can grow is now multiplied in a way that has never been... Uh, seen before and added to that all the new technologies that we were talking about um a bit earlier and so yes i think it's going to be the biggest boom for a number of reasons i mean way bigger than anything we've have ever seen before what do you do you think the 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 because i've i don't correct me if i'm wrong because you've done the masters in finance right uh has there ever been this much uh liquidity through QA and through stimulus and all of that kind of stuff has there ever been this much liquidity pumped into a system on a per capita basis no, no. I mean, you you would you wouldn't you obviously not in, on a per capita nominal basis, but you would, in relation to um, global GDP. No, I don't think so. And the reason being that um, you know the value of land is a thing that goes up the most mm. uh, as society progresses, and the amount of stimulus in all cases is directly linked to propping up the land market. And so if the landmark, if global GDP is bigger and a bigger share of that is land, then the uh, the stimulus to stop the slide has to be bigger and bigger every time. Yep. Okay, cool. I want to start looking forward, but if GFC was GFC was the last kind of decline, yep. when was, what was the one before that? Was it the dot-com bubble? No, that was a mid-cycle. So I say, yeah, that was a mid-cycle recession. Um, the, the previous sort of financial crisis, banking crisis was in the early 90s. Yep. Okay. Was that? Okay, cool. And then previous to that was? The mid-70s. Mid-70s. Got it. Okay, so Around cool. the time, it's known as the oil shock, but actually it was, you know, initially it was a major real estate collapse. Uh, and then, you know. Was it really? Yeah. And was, and was that was that real estate collapse led in the US first then, and then it rippled around and, and created the oil crisis? What's the no, I mean, the oil crisis happened for geopolitical reasons, but, um, you know, these things tend to happen when economic activity is really frenetic, which is always the case at the end of the real estate cycle. Mm. And okay, so it cool. made, a, made a recessionary situation bad because, you know, then you also had inflation uh, as well. Got it. Okay, cool. So there's historical precedents of this being pretty accurate and anyone who's interested in uh, learning a little more about that should definitely head to propertysharemarketeconomics.com. But in the meantime, let's look forward. So if we're currently in a mid-cycle slowdown now and we're hypothesizing that 2026 is financially the end of days until we get into a new phase, <laughs> What does it yeah. does that mean? Does that mean does that mean throw all you like buy everything you can right now and then hypothetically first of January sell everything and just go to cash? Like what's the what's the how do you yeah, what's the strategy? How do you how do you actually use this information to your advantage? Well, I think the first thing is not to overreact. So so people who uh, sell everything and sell their possessions and try and buy a piece in the middle of the bush or whatever it is that 
people do in, when they overreact. I don't. I don't advise that. Look, I mean, it's it's hard to know because as you as you pointed out in two thousand and eight, we were in the middle of a commodities boom, and Australia did rather well. And you know, if you had a very well located property in the middle of Melbourne, you definitely shouldn't be selling that. On the other hand, if you'd built something on the edge of Darwin, uh, um, with all due respect to Darwin, of course, um, I probably would, you know, try and sell out at a high price and not hold that on because, you know, uh, things. So it sort of depends on what your portfolio is. You get rid of the things that are looking weaker and cash it, use the opportunity of high prices to cash out. What you should be doing is not being over leveraged. So you're mm-hmm. well protected in terms of being able to meet your financial obligations. You should have a pile of cash or some liquid asset with which to be able to buy cheap assets when they become available. Um, in a in a financial crisis, um, gold tends to do very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, it's not it's not. I don't. I'm not a gold bug. I don't believe that you know the money system should be based on gold and. Uh, gold is, you know, the asset to have in all situations. But you know, th- in a financial crisis, gold is good is a good sort of bet. Um, and uh, sorry, there was one other thing I wanted to say. Yeah, so I mean, you know, obviously there's a flight to quality. What that might mean. So everyone bought U.S. government bonds in 2008, and you know that appreciated in value very significantly. What that might be next time around, I don't know because it's it's hard to necessarily say. I mean, if if people have thinking that the US is about to collapse, which I really don't think will happen. But, you know, if they if people feel that, then maybe not US bonds, but there'll be something, there'll be some safe haven asset, which you could also have exposure to. Yeah. So those okay. are kind of things, it's hard to say very this far in advance what precisely it might be, but those are the sorts of things I'd be thinking about. Okay, cool. So essentially, essentially it is like you, you use your, use your capital now to get into assets, write it up for the next five to six years, sell down the lower quality ones, decrease your leverage in the higher quality ones, hang on to them, make sure you get a portion in cash so that you can pick up assets in the downturn. Is that pretty much it? Yes, yeah. Awesome. So does does the real estate cycle and the share cycle, are they, they, I understand they're both on an 18.6 year cycle, but do they directly correlate? Like, because what we obviously saw in the, in in Australia was that the, the share market went down pretty significantly. You know, we had a forty percent drop, and then we only had two point eight percent drop in uh, real estate prices nationally. How how tightly do those two, two things correlate? And is it the same advice uh, across all asset classes? Is is it like well, in real estate you should get out after six years, but in in shares you should get out after four and a half or after seven? You know, is there a if is there a difference in how they move or timing in relation to each other? Uh, I mean, they are broadly. I would say correlated is probably not quite the right thing. I mean, it's an economic cycle. So, and because it's an economic cycle. Um, you know, the share market is going to follow that to a certain extent. What you tend to find at the start of the cycle is that the first sign that the cycle is starting is there's a low in the stock market, even before the recession is over necessarily. And uh, even before the the property market has bottomed out. Mm-hmm. Um, what you tend to find at the peak of the cycle is that the land market peaks first uh, and the share market goes on a bit longer. Um so, so they don't. They do have slightly different phasing at the mid cycle because you haven't. Mid cycle hasn't been preceded by a land boom. You don't get a major downturn in the land market or the property market. Uh, whereas you might well get quite a big, significant correction in the share market, depending on what there is. So you got. You know, obviously we've had uh, the events of this year, two thousand one, in the dot com bust um, was also a very bad year for for shares. Um, so, so there are certain other you know factors that um, that play a part. Okay, cool. So you mentioned at the start that you're actually doing like uh, a, a develop an international uh, development. Is that right? Uh, well, that's I work in that now. Yeah, yeah. Time. And so that so that's part time, and then property share market economics is part time. Yes, and also writing a book. <laughs> awesome. What's the book you're writing? Uh, well, I don't. The working title is a secret wealth advantage. So it's basically taking people through the cycle, but phase by phase, providing some of the history, but you know, importantly, what they should be looking out for and what they should do about it. I'm super excited to get a copy of that when it comes out. You'll have to let me know. So, yeah, de- definitely, definitely do that. Okay, so wh- why why 
why are you so passionate about doing this? I mean, this is like a bit of a side gig for you. Why are you so passionate about helping people to understand this? Is it just because your family went through this kind of went through a downturn and you had to experience that firsthand? Like what's, what's the, what's the mission? What drives you to get this message out? Uh, yes. I mean, it's essentially that, I mean, families uh, go through very difficult times in, in when you have a downturn um, and there's no, you know, because there's such a regular repeating enduring cycle, there's really no reason for it. Um, and so, yes, the passion, the passion is to, to help people as many people as I possibly can. I mean, they don't have to necessarily go out and just start buying property. I mean, it's not necessarily that they all want, you know, want them all to be billionaires or millionaires or whatever. It's just simply that they, can have a sense of confidence and security that they can plan, um, you know, that they can achieve their financial goals um, uh, and so on. And then the other thing is, um, and something that we haven't really touched on um, is that I want um, as many people to know about the cycle because there is a way of solving it uh, through mm. the tax system. Uh, and, uh, you know, while, you know, you can make a lot of money out of the cycle, really, if we had if we avoided boom and bust altogether, then you know, as a society, we could all be better off, happier, um, have more time for leisure, uh, and so on. Um, and you know, the world would be a better place. There'd be less conflict. So, so part of it is to to kind of have, you know, both help people, families individually, but also try to help society as a whole. Can, do you want to talk to that? I know it sounds like it's probably a very big topic, but do you want to talk to that for a minute? What do you mean it could be solved through the tax system and we could avoid the boom-bust cycle? Because, I mean, like boom-bust cycles are all any of us have ever really known, really, when we think about it. You yes. Know, so, so how, how yeah. would that work? High, high level. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a fairly big topic, but relatively simple in a sense. So the first person to analyse the boom-bust cycle really um, was this American economist called Henry George in the late 19th century uh, and he was kind of puzzled by two features of you know what he thought was a very progressive economy which you know it was in the late 19th century it was one was that you know you have this enormous gains in in material progress uh, but yet you get these massive busts every sort of 20 years he didn't call it a 20 year cycle but you know he was observing that and then he said and also even though we've got so much progress you know the poor seem to be getting poorer in relative terms to the rich rich seem to be taking bigger and bigger share and you know these are sort of questions that we're still asking ourselves the world over now um and his solution was well you know the tax system is really ultimately bringing this about because when society progresses the gains always end up in the land market so land takes a surplus of progress uh, and you know the progress is a result of public investment in the community growing and so on. And on the other hand, to, in order to fund government and to you know build the infrastructure, we tax people's private income mm. uh, and tax business profits. So you know businesses take all the risks, and people spend all their time, you know, producing all this progress. Uh, and uh, and yet it gets you know some of it gets taxed away, which reduces that activity. And so they said, well, you should stop taxing all of that, and you should make sure that when when you know land prices increase that that increase that's down to public investment should be the bit that you do. What that would do is would stop speculation in the land market, which is what drives the boom and bust. It would stop the dangerous relationship between the banking system and the land market. Um, and is, that so you get- is that essentially putting a cap on land values or at least a throttle? It wouldn't put a cap on land values because land values reflects the amount of progress. What it would do is it put a cap on land price. Yeah. So it, rather than paying for a piece of land or a piece of property, but you know you're really fundamentally paying mainly for the location, you would basically have an obligation to provide uh, an annual service charge which reflects locational value, uh, and you know that locational value would go up. So actually, what it what it would what this solution would do would be creating an almighty boom because you know you'd have all this land coming into the market people wanting to improve their property so they can maximize the rental which would be based on the building not the location um and uh so there'd be a construction boom uh there'd be a lot of cheap sites for entrepreneurs to start businesses so it'd be an employment boom because they'd need people to work in their businesses and it will also reduce the difference between sort of um central locations and and more marginal locations and so marginal locations, they might not necessarily have the population, but what they could offer is cheap sites. And so there'd be a lot of incentive for businesses to relocate. 
Uh, so it's, it would reduce inequality as well as creating a boom. It's a pretty challenging concept on a fundamental level because essentially what you're saying is that whilst land is finite and non-depreciating, it's an appreciating asset and and therefore by 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 proxy of supply versus demand, that's that's the the fundamental of why it goes up. Buildings are a depreciable asset, easily replaceable. You can knock it down, build a new one, all of that kind of stuff. You're saying that the buildings themselves would be the key indicator of the of the revenue generation component. Well, because yes, because you that's the thing that you would be paying for. So if you're an entrepreneur looking to locate, you know, you'd recognize that if you get to occupy a space like either location, you have to pay a rental charge, which reflects the quality of that location. Hmm. Uh, but whoever owns that building has got to try and, um, you know, I, the entrepreneur, they've got to try and maximize the use of that building and make sure it's fit for purpose and do all the things. Whereas now what you can get away with is underutilizing uh, all of that stuff. Uh, and, yeah. you know, you landlords who are, you know, you get, particularly in London where there's less regulation, um, you know, the quality of housing that some tenants have to put up with is absolutely shocking, uh, yeah. even though it's in a really good location. Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. So what we've established is essentially all wealth flows into land intrinsically. Is that essentially, is that a fair statement, do you think? Yeah, all the, the, any, all the surplus, yeah. So obviously, you know, the bit that people need to survive at a, at least a basic level of subsistence doesn't, yep. but everything else does. Okay. So what's your advice to people coming into this cycle and what's your what's your personal view are you are you are you going big on property are you going to go and start buying up land everywhere for this next cycle and what's <laughs> what's your what's your perspective or, or are you going deep on shares you know i'm, I'm very curious and, and i'm very yeah. curious to know what your perspective is and also what your advice would be to other, other people yeah so um i mean obviously not providing financial personal financial advice yeah, course, but yeah. um yeah look i mean to be honest even if you know about the cycle, it doesn't mean you're going to necessarily be a great investor. I mean, you, whatever you're interested in, uh, you should learn sort of and study and, 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 you know, spend the time investigating how it works and what you should be doing. So, you know, you've got to, got to do that thing. And as for, that just depends on what your interest is in and what you feel you have time to learn about, because, you know, property investing is not the most straightforward thing, even in a boom period. I mean, you can get away with making mistakes maybe, but you can still end up with some pretty rubbish investment. So, if that's your thing, you should, you know, and there's so many different things. You could be a buy to let person. You could be a property developer. You could uh, buy pieces of raw land and wait for the town to grow up around yeah. you. I mean, I, that, that sort of thing, but all of those things in good location, uh, depending on how long you can hold for all of those things will make you money. Some will make you more immediate income. Some will be more about capital growth, but they all make you money if you do it right. Um, the share market is quite interesting because, um, you know, you can make a lot of money quite quickly. Uh, there's a lot of different styles of investing. You know, some of it's just about capital growth and, you know, technology stocks and biotech and so on. Some of it pays great dividends, but they also appreciate. So um, for me personally, I'm trying to, I mean, I do a bit of um, um, investing in the share market uh, for sure, because, you know, I don't want to be exposed just to one asset class. Um, I've got some rental properties in the UK. I've also owned shares in a company which owns a big plot of land just outside London. So I'm trying to, you know, have exposures to different segments of the, you know, the property investment uh, market. Um, but yeah, no, not not just in property, also in the share. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Okay, cool. So mate, we've been we've been at this for an hour. I've really appreciated your uh, your insights. Is there anything is, is is there anything that I that I haven't picked apart here that you think would be really beneficial for people? Or is there anything else that you want to share with with anyone that I might have missed that's going to help uh, enlighten them as to how they can best utilize this time? Well, I mean, I think if they wanted to, I mean, it's not we haven't touched on it. If they wanted to really see the historical evidence behind the cycle, Phil's book is a great start. I mean, as you say, it's not the sort of thing you need to read end to end in one sitting. You can dip into each um, historical episode, uh, you know, one by one and put it down. I mean, each each chapter is what, 10, 15 pages. So, uh, so you can do that. I mean, there's actually a treasure trove of investment insights in that. It's... Um, uh, so that you could pull out if you see the repeat. Um, otherwise, I mean, if you're convinced by the cycle, then, um, you know, come and come and you can sign up to our free list and get our blogs and so on uh, on property share market economics, or you can become an investor, investor rather, subscriber. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, there are a few other books, anything written by um, 
Fred Foldvari or Fred Harrison mm. is always worth reading. So follow them on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I just think there's this, I mean, it's such a big subject. There's so many different angles to it that, um, you know, we could be here for like, you know, one year and still not be finished. <laughs> to- totally, totally. I was about to say, like, there's so much to continue. Like, this is very good high level, but there's probably like so many niche pieces that we could go into. I'd love to uh, kind of maybe periodically check in with you on on where things are at in the cycle and kind of do something like that. And, and yeah, I think that'd be really fascinating if just because then we can kind of look at actually, okay, how is this relating to what is actually happening? As I say, look, one of the big light bulb moments for me as, as someone who'd been very interested in, in the 18.6 year cycle and all of that kind of stuff. But I actually remember, uh, I think I was reading, I might've been reading one of the the email bulletins from property share market economics or something to that effect. And I sort of read it one week and it said the next, basically I'm alliterating here, but basically the next thing that's going to happen is that the government are going to relax uh, credit policy. And then literally <laughs> the next week it was like government is uh, axing responsible lending laws. And I was like, oh man, guys, come on. <laughs> like this is like, it was, it was almost too accurate and, uh, and that's actually part of the reason I wanted to get you on this show. I think whilst no, whilst nothing, you can never have a, a complete blueprint. You can't say, look, guys, set your watch, as you say, and, yeah, yeah. you know, at this point, sell everything and this. It. But I think that when you discover something which has so much weight to it, even if you take it as a perspective to go, okay, I can put that in my mind and then still view the world in in whatever the context it is, you can at least overlay that and start to make sense of the things that are happening around you as opposed to just acting in a reactionary way because, you know, a lot of people have made a lot of money and a lot of people have lost a lot of money um, trying to to trying to build wealth. Some people have been successful and some people have not. And I think the more that we can, you know, gain a better understanding of how these markets and how these kind of situations move, I think the better off everyone's going to be. Because like you, I, I have a desire to, to to see a society full of, you know, broad spread prosperity and fulfillment and happiness. And I think that this is just one way that we can help people get there. Indeed. Yeah, look, the confidence is really the key point. I mean, it doesn't necessarily, you might, you might not do anything with the information in terms of investing, but, you know, it gives you something at least to track and to follow. And I think you'll start to see that, you know, the reason why, you know, we were correct about relaxing responsible lending is because we've seen it in history, but we know that we all operate in the same economic system, which has endured for, you know, many hundreds of years. Uh, And within that system, you know, governments and people, investors and employees and employers face similar incentives at similar times in the cycle. Uh, And, you know, human beings respond to incentives. Um, And the government, you know, sees a problem in the credit market because it fears a return to the financial crisis. Uh, And so it relaxes lending laws. I mean, it just, you know, it just happens every time. It's not necessarily the same changes. It might happen slightly later or slightly earlier, but, you know, nonetheless, it happens. But it's Um, not just the responsible lending laws. Like in November of 2019, uh, you guys were saying that in March of 2020, we were going to see the peak of the share market, I believe it was. and so, the, well, and so that, yes, yeah, so, yeah we on. delve into kind of stock market forecasting as well. Uh, and but the, the unique thing, I mean, because, you know, there are a lot of people who are active in markets who say they do the same thing. I think the unique thing about us is that we put stock market cycles and the real estate cycle together. And that's the reason why we can be so sort of um, convinced that, you know, early part of this year would see a peak. Nice, nice. Well, Akil, I've really appreciated your time. I really genuinely have. And if people want to uh, subscribe, it's propertysharemarketeconomics.com. That's correct, yes. Awesome. I highly recommend you definitely go there and check that out. And if you can actually get a copy of Phil's book, which is actually surprisingly hard to find, it's called The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. Um, it's 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 definitely not, um, it's probably not bedtime reading. It's a little bit of a study, but it's, um, it's definitely insightful. Akil, again, thank you so much. I really appreciated your time. I think this is going to be super valuable.